If I haven't uh, met you before, I'm Ryan. I'm one of the pastors here at Spring Hill. And uh, if you're visiting with us for the first time, I just want to pay you a particular welcome and say what an honor it is to have you with us. In fact, uh, just you being here really fulfills a part of the, the vision that we believe God is calling us toward, which is to be a church to call home. And so uh, my prayer is that you will just find yourself at home this morning and tell you a little bit about Spring Hill and who we are. We are uh, one church worshiping in two locations again as of a few weeks ago. Praise the Lord. Uh, One under the Bridger Mountains, just right out our windows, literally look to our site, and then one here in the valley. And uh, we exist for the purpose of building authentic community in Christ uh, here in Bozeman and Belgrade, Four Corners, uh, and Livingston and on. Um, So um, we're in the midst of this sermon series uh, as we're walking through John's gospel, sort of one story at a time, and um, we're knee-deep in it now. And uh, that's uh, all the more of a relevant phrase as we open up this morning to, uh, to John's Gospel, chapter 6. And we're going to learn about that moment where Jesus walks on the water, an all-too-familiar story. John, chapter 6, verses 16 to 21. I'm particularly excited to bring you this word today. Let's, let's listen to God's word. When evening came, his disciples went down to the sea. They got into a boat and started across the sea to Capernaum. It was now dark, and Jesus had not yet come to them. The sea became rough because a strong wind was blowing. When they had rowed about three or four miles, they saw Jesus walking on the sea and coming near the boat, and they were frightened. But he said to them, It is I, do not be afraid. Then they were glad to take him into the boat, and immediately the boat was at the land to which they were going. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God endures forever. We've heard this one before, haven't we? It was a dark, cold, stormy night. The wind was howling. The waters were raging. The depth of darkness had overcome the crew. This is the kind of story that we we tell with a flashlight under our chin around the campfire, isn't it? I can list all the movies that fall into this this same sort of genre. Pirates of the Caribbean, Gilligan's Island, The Life of Pi, Swiss Family Robinson, Castaway. Let me remind us of what we already know. This isn't your typical story of survivors at sea. This story tells us something about our faith. Our scripture tells us the disciples had been rowing for miles against these wind and these waves. It was the dead of night. The boat was at the mercy of this sudden windstorm. You get the scene. And here's the worst part. Jesus is nowhere to be found. The miracle worker back on land is nowhere to be found. In fact, our scripture tells us almost ominously, it says Christ had not yet come to them. You've got to make note of this with me. This is the polar opposite of last week's story, right? If you're joining us for the first time and you missed this, this week's, last week's lesson, let me just catch you up for a minute. Last week, the disciples were sitting out in the green pastures, remember? They were basking in the glow of the afternoon sun. They had gathered all the leftovers. Jesus had fed the thousands. Life was good. In fact, we learned that every hungry follower had eaten their fill. We love it when life gives us leftovers. But here's what happened next. 
Christ now slips away to a nearby mountain to be with the Father, and now this morning everything is drastically different. In fact, Matthew's account of this story tells us that Jesus actually had the disciples walk down to the water, get into the boat, and start out on the sea ahead of him. And here comes the storm. You know, there's something quite delicate about the the open water, isn't there? Something fragile about that. Reminds me of a story I read uh, back a while ago about a guy named Douglas Robertson. Douglas and his family were just two days into a 40-day journey that was going to lead them on what they called a round-the-world voyage at sea. They had sailed just 200 miles off the coast of the Galapagos Islands, and life was good until out of nowhere, disaster struck. Early one morning, the family was gathered at the bottom of the boat, brewing cups of coffee below deck, and Douglas and his brother were up on top, and they were looking out over the sunrise, and just as they looked to the horizon, Douglas saw this triangle-shaped fin pop out of the water and then disappear. He leaned over and he hollered at his brother to get his attention and pointed out, and just as he did so, their 43-foot yacht went straight up into the air and slammed back onto the ocean floor. The force was so significant, it broke the ship's keel in two. You'll remember that the keel is that single piece of wood that runs from the stern of the boat to the bow. It was gone. The family thought somehow they had hit a sandbar, but Douglas knew that was impossible. They were in deep, deep waters. In the panic, he looked out and beyond the record, that, the wreckage, that's where he saw the same fin again. This time, it was a killer whale bleeding from its head. They had no choice but to abandon ship. Listen to how Douglas explained it. He said, I was thinking at the time, this is how I'm going to die. I'm going to be eaten by bloody killer whales. And I kept feeling for my legs, he said, to see if I still had them. Because I heard you don't even feel the bite. That was day one of now 38 days being lost at sea. Just think about the ominous power of the open water, right? In the disciples' case, they're they're on a lake. There are no whales. They were traveling across this six-mile sea. If you were to take Livingston, in fact, and let's just pretend that we filled that whole area with water, right? This was the scene. It was a wind tunnel. And when the storms hit, the last place you want to be is on that boat. On the water. But it's about to get even more terrifying because now out of nowhere, our scripture tells us the disciples now see a ghost of a man walking towards them in this raging storm. Don't read this as though you've heard the story before. Read this as though you're one of those men rowing frantically with water blowing in your face as the wind whips your boat against the waves. Look at how Mark's gospel describes this moment. Look up on the screens here. Mark 6, 48. About the fourth watch of the night, Jesus came to them walking on the sea. He meant to pass by them, but when they saw him walking on the sea, they thought it was a ghost and cried out for all had seen him and they were terrified. Now just pause with me for a minute. You would think the disciples in this moment would be elated, wouldn't you? Right? How are they not overjoyed right now? The miracle worker has come. If he can take bread and fish and feed thousands, certainly he can handle this situation. But you just read it, and I just read it. This is no moment of comfort. This is now a moment of panic. Are we hallucinating? Has the end of the world come? First the storm and now a ghostly figure walking towards us. This is humanly impossible. It's a moment of complete disorientation, horror, 
In fact, the Greek in our lesson tells us these men were phobeomai. Look at this up on the screens here. That term is where we get the word phobia. Phobeomai is described in the concordance as a state of severe distress caused by an intense concern for impending pain, danger, or death. This miracle is nothing like the ones that these men have experienced so far. Let's just walk out the miracles that we've walked through uh, to date in John's gospel. Jesus turns water into wine. That's pretty cool, right? It's, it's a curious moment, but not a scary one. And then Jesus heals this official's son from afar. That's a head turner, but there's nothing particularly frightening about that. He heals then the invalid man down by the pool. That was a few weeks ago. Now this one stirs up controversy, but nobody's scared. In fact, with every single miracle, there seems to be more and more momentum, more people not running from Jesus, but coming towards him, which led us to last week with 5,000 people eating their fill. But now it's the bleakest of night. The disciples have lost all control. They're in absolute peril. And this figure emerges that is Jesus Christ walking out towards them as the waves crash over his ankles. And remember, this is no movie. This is the God that we worship. And there's something critical, I think, for us to take away in this moment. Here's what I want us to see this morning. Every miracle so far in this series has been about someone's physical needs, right? It's about Jesus meeting the physical ailments of people in order to bring God the glory. But this one is different. This one is about Jesus caring for our souls. Let me explain. We know the elements of the storm very well. Darkness and wind and waves. We know all about that phenomena. We know what it is to walk in uncertainty, right? That's darkness. Without a light, you can't see what's ahead. Darkness equals unknown. It's, it's an uneasy, if not terrifying place for us to be. We've been there. And wind is exhausting. It's relentless. It's that which wears on us, whatever that is in your life. You, you might remember the windstorm a few weeks ago here in Bozeman. You could see out the church the shingles flying off the roof. Right? Wind chips away at us one gust at a time. We know all about the damage of the windstorms in our life. And if you've ever been in the ocean, then we know all about the waves too. In fact, I'll admit, the ocean is one of my greatest fears. One minute you're snorkeling, the next minute it's riptide. It's unpredictable. That too is life. Let me, let me ask it like this. What is the raging wind? Or the, the whipping waves that have been crashing over you? Where is the darkness and the, the uncertainty that's been weighing on your heart? Here's why I assume you have the answer. It seems to me that as go the weather patterns in the skies, so goes life. One day we're, we're eating our fill in the grassy hills with Jesus. And the next day we're in the raging sea wondering where in the world he is. If you have your Bibles out, I want you to look at a psalm with me this morning. We'll have it up on the screens too, but we're going to look at Psalm 107. And I want you to see how this all plays out in God's word over and over again. Um, I'm going to read it aloud, but as I do that, I want you to look for two things, okay? In the first section we're going to read together, I want you to look for the feeding of the 5,000. And then in the second section of Psalm 107, I want you to look at what God does in the midst of the storm. And here's what we're going to find. In either case, we serve the same God who does the same exact 
thing. Look at this with me. Psalm 107, verse 1. Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good. His steadfast love endures forever. Let the redeemed of the Lord say so, whom he has redeemed from trouble. And gathered in from the lands, from the east and the west, the north and the south. Some wandered in desert wastes, finding no way to a city to dwell in, hungry and thirsty. Their soul fainted within them. Then they cried to the Lord in their trouble, and he delivered them from their distress. He led them by a straight way till they reached a city to dwell in. Let them thank the Lord for his steadfast love, for his wondrous works to the children of man. Here's the important part. For he satisfies the longing soul, and the hungry soul he fills with good things. And life is good, right? Can you see the feeding of the 5,000 there? That same kind of theme. Okay, well, here comes the storm. Look at this in verse 23 now. Skip to 23. Some went down to the sea in ships, doing business on the great waters. They saw the deeds of the work, the Lord, his wondrous works in the deep. For he commanded and raised the stormy wind, which lifted the waves of the sea. They mounted up to heaven and then went down to the depths. Their courage melted away in their evil plight. They reeled and staggered like drunken men and were at their wits' end. They cried to the Lord in their trouble, and he delivered them from their distress. And he made the storm be still. The waves of the sea were hushed. This is my favorite part because it's almost verbatim what we read in our lesson this morning. Then they were glad. The waters were quiet, and he brought them to their desired haven. You catch the common theme? It doesn't matter the season, right? It doesn't matter the weather or the predicament that we're going through. Our faith tells us that the God we worship is a deliverance kind of God, a saving kind of God, a a get-you-to-the-other-side-of-storm kind of God. It's so easy, I think, for us to see the hand of God move when we have an abundance that we, we didn't see coming. It's typical to give thanks and praise to the Lord when there's leftovers on the table and all is well. The crowds are cheering in the green pastures. The question is, what happens when the seas begin to totter and the wind begins to roar and the darkness of the unknown now settles in? Back in the early 90s, a a cargo ship full of children's toys was bound for uh, the United States, and somewhere between China and home, it hit an unexpected turn. The seas had gotten so rough that dozens of containers were thrown off the ship and onto the ocean floor, and one of the containers, uh, when it hit bottom, it broke open. And here's the fun part. It just so happened that this particular box was holding 30,000 bath toys. Rubber duckies, floating turtles, alligators, you name it. Thousands of these toys now floated to the surface and spread all over the globe. They found them washed up the beach in Hawaii, in Alaska, South America, Australia, Scotland, Texas. They even found them most recently frozen in the ice of the Arctic Sea. 20 years later, a shipwreck can be a disastrous thing, right? Frederick Dale Bruner once said the historical image of the church is often painted as a ship, a vessel sailing right into the middle of a raging storm. You know, as Christ followers, uh, what Bruner's trying to get across is we should understand our place in the world as that boat. And the world around us is that storm. 
So what happens when the church begins to feel overwhelmed in their vessel? See, it's important that we see something this morning. This is not a story about a miracle. This is a story about two miracles. Did you see how that played out? Look at this in John 6, 19. Here's the first one. When they had rowed about three or four miles, they saw Jesus walking on the sea. That's where we've been focused so far. The disciples were so caught up in the storm around them that they had forgotten to look for Jesus. He had appeared right in front of them. They were so frightened they didn't even recognize who he was. But fast forward with me now. The story's just coming together. Look at this in verse 20. But he said to them, it is I, do not be afraid. Then they were glad to take him into the boat and immediately the boat was on land. Did you catch the second miracle? How is it the disciples go from a furious fish storm to now this solid ground that was their destination just by the simple presence of Jesus Christ? Fear is a, a powerful phenomenon, right? By its very nature, that the storm reveals to us we are not in control. Some of us, we know this far better than others. You can save all the money in the world, but you can't stop the crash of a stock market. You can follow the perfect diet and you can exercise every day, but that doesn't guarantee you longevity in this life. You can raise up your children in the wisdom of God, but that doesn't mean they won't stumble somewhere along the way. You can work tirelessly to accomplish that goal and yet still not hit it. And when the storm comes, let's face it, we'd rather, much rather be on land with the crowds, licking our fingers and wiping our chops full up with a fresh cop meal. Here's the good news this morning though. Even if you are seasick and exhausted and confused, this is the moral. If you're rowing against the wind and waves as followers of Christ, we cannot lose sight of these two realities. One, Christ never left you. And two, he's gonna bring you back to dry land again. Look at this. Jesus comes to the disciples and he tells these terrified men, he says, it is I. Do you see that? And just so we don't lose the meaning here, let me directly translate the Greek. He says, ego eimi. This isn't just a greeting. This is a declaration of God's presence. Say that with me. Ego eimi. Ego eimi. I am. That's the direct translation. I am, do not be afraid, I am. Last week, we talked about the burning bush with Moses. Remember that? And, and in this moment, God asks Moses to go back into the wind and waves of Egypt to free his people from slavery. But Moses isn't having it. He was a convict. He knew that wasn't gonna work out well. So he asks God in this burning bush, who should I tell them is the one who sent me? Remember God's response? I am. Ego and me. Tell them I am sent you. I am is the definitive statement of God's divine presence and who he is. I am means God's plans are not conditioned by our plans. I am means God is in complete control. He's completely self-reliant, all-knowing, all-present, all-perfect, almighty. I am means that God commands even the seas and the seas obey him. No other being in the universe can make that kind of claim except for him. And Jesus now shows up in the midst of one of the most terrifying moments for his followers, and he makes a claim in the midst of the storm to be God. 
Do not be afraid. Ego e me, I am. In fact, in John's gospel, this is one of the Jesus' favorite phrases. He expounds upon it seven different times. I am the bread of life. I am the light of the world. I'm the door for the sheep. I am the good shepherd. I am the vine. I am the resurrection and the life. But here's the problem. We would much rather take our oars and row it ourselves. I mean, be honest, when you find yourself in a situation that's far beyond your control, you know you're in over your head, what's one of the first coping mechanisms that comes to mind? I'll confess. Is it to pray? Not typically. Is it that we open up God's word and we search the riches of his knowledge? That's not probably the first thing we do. Give it to the Lord. Maybe when the boat starts to fall apart. No, the first thing that we start doing in the storm, the first thing I often do is we start rowing. Right? Whatever I can do to control the situation, we're a self-made people. We want to be the I am. We can row ourselves out of this. When what we really need to do is get Jesus back into the boat and let him do his thing. Dan Allender, who's a prominent Christian counselor, he talks about three ways that we often come at a a storm as followers of Christ. And particularly, we do these things when we're leading others. The first, he says, the first two are not good. And the first, he says, is that of control. He says, when the wind and waves begin to pound us, we'll begin to lean into what we know, try to micromanage our way out. And sometimes that works, but if we're honest, control is really the reservoir of our fear. Under that facade that we've got it together, we're really terrified deep within. The second is just as natural, just as broken. He says the second tendency is for us to flee. When you're a boat that's ravaged by the storm, the the next best thing is to run from the thunder and the lightning. But that too is manifesting our fear. It leaves us without resolution. And if we're honest, most of the time, we're really running from ourselves. Neither option is sufficient, but the answer, Allender says the only answer, is to bring our broken selves and our broken vessels before the one who was with us all along and give the storm to him instead. Now, I know for some of us, maybe today is a feeding of the 5,000 kind of day for you, and, and life is good, which is awesome. Praise the Lord, we're full up. And yet it's not a matter of if, It's a matter of when the next storm will come. And when the next one hits and the wind is howling, the waves are battering the boat, the darkness overwhelms us. Here's your life vest. Isaiah 43 says, when you pass through the waters, I am with you. For I am the Lord, your God, the Holy One of Israel, the Savior, the Deliverer. Do not fear Psalm 107 says, Then they were glad that the waters were quiet, and he brought them to their desired haven. John 6, They were glad to take him into the boat, and immediately the boat was at the land to which they were going. Whatever the storm or the the darkness or the wind, the waves that we're rowing in, here's what we can cling to today. Jesus is still with you. And for those who cry out to him, 
every time he's promised us he'll see us to the eternal shore. So this is my invitation this week. Take a break from rowing so hard. Leave the oars aside for a minute. And right now, even now, let's ask God to give us the courage and the peace to face whatever it is that lies before us this week. Will you pray with me? God, we know that you are for us, Lord, and if you are for us, not even the storm can be against us. Lord, we thank you that you've given us this this story of terrified disciples in the midst of a a raging sea on a boat. God, and the, the picture that you've given us is the church. And yet you are Lord, not only of this church and of the the vessel that we're rowing in, Lord, but you are Lord of all. You are Lord of even the the sea. So God, we ask this morning, would you give us courage to face whatever it is that's coming our way? Lord, we thank you for the storms of this life because they, they cause us to rely again on you, to look for you. Lord, to even have a healthy fear of you. God, we pray as we leave this place today, we would know that you are with us, guiding us every step of the way. And Lord, in those moments when we get a little seasick, God, would you keep us mindful that you are the God who delivers us from the storm. In Jesus' name, all God's people said, amen.